Now let me catch you up. We're in our series, and the series is Real World 101, and this is our last night. So we have covered an array of different topics about adulting and getting into the real world and what it means to live all on our own, in a sense. What it means to gain responsibility and to gain freedom and to gain the opportunity to choose a lot of different things about our life that we don't necessarily get to choose when we're below 18 years of age. And the struggles of becoming an adult are no secret statistically and they're no secret culturally. Once you hit 18 and once you begin to go into college, there's a lot of challenges that come with that. But not just that, when you get out of, out of college and you start working full time and you start getting into the real world where you're not a student anymore, there's even more challenges that come up. Well, we at The View and here at Bellevue believe it's very important to train the next generation and to disciple the next generation on what it means to be a disciple of Christ and to live for him in the real world. So we've tackled some issues in this series that are very relevant to your season of life. We've talked about your first full-time job. We've talked about what it means to really grow up and, and leave your parents, in a sense, to make decisions on your own and to have responsibility. We've talked about conflict resolution. We've talked about finances. We've talked about a lot of things, and I want to encourage you. Six weeks is not long enough for a series like this. <laughs> there are several different topics that we could cover that you are walking through. What I want to encourage you is there's a lot of really great biblical resources out there that can walk you through what the Bible says about becoming an adult and gaining responsibility. And I've done a lot of study over the last few weeks. I'll be at the table. If you would love to hear some of those resources, I would love to recommend some to you tonight. So even though our series is ending, as we're heading into Christmas break, if you want to keep going in this study, please come by me. I would love to recommend a few things to you biblically and outside resources that, that direct you a little bit biblically too. But tonight, we come to a very important topic, and I hope that you saw this on social media. If you're taking notes, I hope that you are. This is what I want you to write down at the top of your notes. It's the final sermon. The title is, it'll pop up on the screen, Way Too Young to Be Feeling This Old. Some people <laughs> let out a... Ugh. Like a sigh, like, man, you feel it. Way too young to be feeling this old. And what do we mean by this? It's not bad to be old. We certainly know that. With age comes wisdom, experience, all the different things. To have a long life is a great blessing. So we're not necessarily saying this is a negative towards age. But what we're talking about here is we're talking about stress, worry, and ultimately anxiety. 18 to 29-year-olds in America are one of the most stressed, anxious generations we have had in a long, long time. Possibly, statistically, the most anxious generation. In fact, when you study your season of life and you study what your generation is having to navigate with things such as the internet being in your pocket 24-7, social media connecting you to people around the clock, when you look at some of the hardships in our nation that we have experienced, the tension we've had over the last few years, where our economy is, where we are politically, the racial tensions that we have had in our nation, all of the conflicts that we have had, the differences in different sides of what people believe, like tensions are high and your generation is stressed and anxious. Anxiety is probably the greatest underlying killer that is robbing 18 to 29-year-olds of their peace, their joy, and their direction. Everybody's worried. Everybody's anxious. And everybody's walking around so exhausted and tired all the time. If you don't believe me, listen to what you and your friends talk about. If you listen long enough in a conversation, you will hear somebody say, man, I am just so tired. <laughs> you probably said it today, too. We talk all the time about, man, I'm just so tired. Like, I know we, we should go to the view tonight, but I'm so tired, right? You know? I've got to study, but I'm so tired, you know? 
that exhaustion, like everybody's stressed, everybody's worried. We're so connected digitally and we're so thinking about tomorrow, we're often not where our feet are. It's very hard to be planted right where we are. Everybody's anxious, everybody's stressed. Why is that? Everybody feels a lot older than they are. Everybody feels like we have these massive problems we got to conquer and these answers we have to get, and it is taking a generation down. Now, before we get to our text tonight, I want you to write down an informal definition of anxiety. I want to put this on the screen. Anxiety is a form of fear in which the person perceives a threat of danger to themselves, someone they cherish, or something they cherish. So we'll keep this up for a minute. Let's, let's have the same definition of what we're talking about, about anxiety. Because the Bible speaks on it a lot. In fact, Jesus and Paul both speak on anxiety a lot. But the informal definition would be, it is a form of fear, not just fear itself, but it's a form of fear in which you feel a possible incoming threat towards your heart. This is very important on anxiety. Anxiety means threat. Any moment you feel anxious, that means you, someone you love, or something you love is under attack. This is why you see people who go through addictions, especially with drugs, and people in their life, their loved ones, try to come and talk to them about that addiction or that problem they have. A lot of times they'll freak out, they'll get anxious, and they'll run. And the reason why is because that drug, whether they know it or not, has become something they cherish. It's something they need. And for a loved one to come and speak against that drug, it's not that they don't want their loved one to tell them what's best. It's that their loved one is attacking something they cherish, right? And we see anxiety play out in a lot of different ways. Biblically, Jesus and Paul are very clear that we are not to be anxious. We're not to give in to anxiety. We're not called to live that way. Now, I want to separate something as we talk about definitions. I love this quote. It's from Eld Wetch from Running Scared. I'll put this on the screen. It says, our word fear doesn't discriminate between threats that are present or future, real or perceived. But fear says, I am in danger. Here's the difference between anxiety and worry. Anxiety and worry are less oriented to the present. They say, I think there will be a danger. Something or someone I love might be threatened in the future. So understand, the difference between fear and anxiety is fear is about a current danger. Public speaking, I am afraid to be in front of this many people at once. I have a fear coming over me. Anxiety is, I believe a speech is coming. <laughs> a public speaking moment is coming, and I'm nervous, and I'm anxious for it, and it's building up. There's a difference between the two. One is present, and one is to come. Now, before we cheer for our text tonight, before we talk about where we're going to be in the Bible, I want to put a few statistics at you about anxiety. A recent study found this on worrying. It found that 40% of what we worry about never happens. In fact, the what-if scenarios that we play out in our mind... 30% of what we worry about deals with the past. A lot of our anxiety is not even anything in the present. And then I love these last two. Only 8% of our worries were found in a study to actually be legit concerns. 92% of what we worry about was found to be wasted time. You and I are generations that are very anxious. We're worried, we're stressed, and we're on edge. And tonight, I don't want to give you a how-to sermon on how to conquer it because we've done that here at The View. If you listen to our podcast, there are two sermons from last year that I'll recommend you on practicality for overcoming anxiety because that's not tonight's message. So hear me very clearly. We're not giving out action steps tonight. This is a different sermon. There's two sermons on the podcast from last year called Anxiety in Jesus, Part 1 and Part 2. 
Both of those sermons, if you were here for those, you'll know we dug deep into the origin of anxiety, why it starts, and what to do about it. That's not tonight's. Here's tonight's sermon, where we're going to end our series. Tonight's sermon is the effects of anxiety. What I want to do is I want to present to you what is happening to you when you and I choose to live in chains to anxiety. This is not a how-to sermon. This is what is happening when we give in to this. We're going to look at spiritually, socially, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And how all five areas are currently being damaged in your life if you and I aren't doing anything about the anxiety that we face. And statistically in this room, each one of us have at least low to mid-levels of anxiety. And for some of us, we have very high anxiety. So this is a very important topic. So let's go to the Word because that's where all of our answers are found. If you will, I hope you'll get as excited as you can to open up to 1 Peter chapter 5 tonight. <laughs> Hallelujah. 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're making your way there, this is going to be our main text. But I have another text we're going to look at as well that you may be familiar with. So I want you to find two places in your Bible. The first is 1 Peter chapter 5, which is just towards the end of the New Testament. And then towards the beginning of the New Testament, you can go ahead and find Matthew chapter 6. Appreciate the commitment. Come on, we'll try it again. Well, we can find Matthew chapter 6. Come on. Now, this is a gospel of Matthew that is about Jesus, about the story and life of Jesus. And we're going to look at both of these texts tonight on anxiety and the effects of it. Why do we all feel so old? Why do we feel so stressed? Why do we feel so worn down and anxious? Let's talk about it. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, this is a letter of Peter, and he is speaking. And in this, at the very end, he gives a conclusion of his letter. And it's a very good conclusion. If you have never read 1 Peter, I encourage you to. It's a fantastic letter. But at the end, he gives us some of his best exhortation. So look with me in light of this. Let's keep in mind that every topic we've covered in this series is affected by anxiety. Your job, your family, your career, your friendships, all of it is affected by anxiety. Let's have those lens about us tonight. Let's also have the lens about us that every single one of us in this room struggles with mid to low or even high forms of anxiety and worry and stress. And that there must be something done about it. And let's look at the exhortation that Peter gives. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 6. Peter says this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Many translations say casting all your anxieties, casting all your worries, casting all your fears on him. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Here's an exhortation. Resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. And then I want to turn your attention, if you'll flip to Matthew chapter 6, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at verse 25. I'll give you a moment, chapter 6, verse 25. And as we read the teachings of Jesus, try to imagine what this means for your life personally today. Verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body or what you will wear. 
Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And then verse 27, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And all God's people said, amen. Let's talk about this. Let me give you number one. I have five effects of anxiety that are hurting you and me in this generation. Here's number one. Anxiety divides your mind. Anxiety divides your mind. I don't even need to explain what this means for you and me. I don't even need to explain what this looks like. We will biblically, but you understand what this means. You have experienced what it means to be double-minded, to have a split mind. I have and you have. Number one, anxiety divides your mind. Now let's first understand that when Peter says be sober-minded, the reason he says be sober-minded, the reason that James tells us to not have a divided mind is because there's an enemy looking to attack. That there is an enemy who wants to devour you and take you down, and he wants to rob you of your joy, and he wants to keep you from being obedient to the Lord. Anxiety begins in our emotions. It does not begin in our mind. Remember that. Anxiety begins in your emotions as you have an emotional response to something threatening you. So the last time you were anxious, think about the last time you were worked up, you were stressed, you were worried. What was it over? Nine and a half times out of ten, there was a threat coming against you, something you love, something you cherish, something that you thought was yours. There was a threat towards it. Somebody threatened it. You felt that God may take it away or you didn't know the circumstance or the outcome that was going to happen of something and that stress begins to rule you, and it's an emotion. But what happens is when we have negative emotions that we don't give to the Lord and we don't bow those down, those emotions rule us. You know it as well as I do. You know when you're being led by your emotions, and I do too. And those emotions, those negative emotions, those fears and worries that we have begin to divide our mind, and we have these thoughts inside of our head that begin to drive a wedge between our thoughts that should be on the Lord and what we're truly thinking about. I love this quote I put on the screen. It says, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. In 10 years, we will each look in the mirror and someone will stare back. That person will be shaped by the thoughts of today. We've all in this room known what it means to be double-minded. It means your mind's not really where it's supposed to be. It means your mind's not really thinking about what it's supposed to be thinking about. This is why texting and driving is so dangerous, <laughs> right? Because your mind's divided. You're trying to operate a vehicle that can kill a human life while also texting and responding to something or calling somebody, messing with social media on your phone. That's the reason why texting and driving is so hard. You're double-minded. Every single one of us have been at lunch with somebody, been at dinner with somebody, sat down with somebody, and our mind not truly been there because we've been thinking about something else. Every single one of us have had a mind where we cannot stop thinking about that one sin that we keep on going back to. Whether it's lust in our mind and we try to focus on doing right, being kind to people, following God, but our mind continues to go to that lust. And it's like you have two compartments in your mind. That you have the compartment on one side where you want to do right and you want to grow and you want to be responsible, you want to live for the Lord. But in the other half of your mind are these sinful thoughts that you can't seem to get rid of. That's the whole reason why we have a lot of Christians who play the game. They go to church, but they don't really live it out. Why? Because we get double-minded. 
God is on the left half of my brain, which is Sunday morning. And everything worldly is on the right side of my mind, which is Monday to Saturday. And you and I know we are often deterred from the faith, pushed away from the faith when we see somebody who is living a double life. That's something we never want to see. That's something that doesn't encourage us. It comes from being double-minded. God is on one side. Everything else is on the other. But God didn't create your mind to be that way. God did not create your mind to be double-minded. God did not create your mind to be one that is stressed and anxious. God gave you this mind that's an incredible one. Your mind is one of the best gifts that you have. That's why pastor says, if you're in your right mind, be thankful for it. There's people who aren't. That your mind is one of the best gifts that God has given you. And God wants your mind to not be divided, but to be whole, to be one. Same with your heart. Scripture says you cannot serve and love God in money because your heart's split. At the end of the day, one will fail. But he wants your mind to be one, and he wants your mind to be focused on one thing. And that's pleasing him. Why? Because he's a selfish God, in a sense. But because you serving him and living for him is the best thing for you, and it gives him all of the glory. And he has not called you to live with a double mind, but sadly, your generation and mine is living with a double mind. We have all these stresses and worries on one side of our brain, and we're trying to obey God on the other side, and we just can't do it. It's dangerous. It robs you of your peace. In fact... One of the best quotes I have ever heard is that your peace cannot truly be taken from you. You must surrender it. That at the end of the day, if you don't have peace, if your life is all over the place, if you're a mess and you don't really know what you're doing and you're worked up all the time and anxious, that nobody can truly take your peace. If you don't have peace, it's because you laid it down. It's because you surrendered it. It's because you gave it away. Because Jesus, when he says in John 14, I love this text. He says this, John 14 is verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. That as a believer, you have peace until you choose to lay it down and to give it up. How do you choose to lay it down and give it up? You choose to not trust God. What does that look like? That means you have to take control over your life because God isn't trustworthy of it. And that leads to a whole lot of anxiety, does it not? My mom is here. She's always here. She comes on Mondays to hear me preach. And I remember when I went to Southwest Community College just trying to get in. My grades were so bad. They didn't have the two years free of college yet. You still had to pay for Southwest. I didn't even have the grades to really get into Southwest. My high school was such a bad experience. And I remember going to Southwest and talking to admissions and talking to financial aid. And I remember being so overwhelmed because I had no idea what to say. I had no idea what to do to get myself into school. I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know what they needed from me. And I couldn't really comprehend it. It took me a while for the train to get there sometimes. And I needed help. And I remember going to Southwest. I remember having so much peace because my mom was driving me. <laughs> Even at 18 years old, having her drive me there and her talk to these people and explain it to me and walk me through getting to school brought so much peace because I realized I can give her control because she's trustworthy of my control. And it brought a whole lot of peace in my life as opposed to me trying to control the situation and not really knowing what I'm doing. See, a lot of you in your life don't have peace because you're trying to drive, you're trying to steer, and God has your best interest at heart, and he will be the best guider that there ever is. The question for you is, is he trustworthy for you to give him control? If he's not trustworthy, then you will always try to do it yourself. And anytime you try to do it to yourself, just by yourself, I promise you anxiety is bound to follow. Stress and worry is about to follow. Jesus offers peace. 
And if you don't have peace in your day-to-day life, it's because you and I surrendered it and laid it down. See, Jesus, when he died on the cross for your sins, when he offered up his blood, when he paid the penalty for your sins that you and I couldn't pay, when he did that and resurrected from the grave and has offered us to be a new creation, he has offered us a chance to have one mind that is not divided by this world. And if you're living with a double mind, you will never truly have the peace or joy that he is offering you. Anxiety divides your mind. Anxiety robs you of being able to focus on what he has laid out to focus in your life. God bless you. It's that time of year. Everybody's sniffling. I I can hear the sniffling across the room, man. Facts. Philippians 2.2, Paul says this, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way having the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. (laughs) Why is it so hard to get along with other people like we talked about weeks ago? Well, the reason why is because not only is it so hard for you to get your mind undivided, it's really hard to get a group of people to have one mind. You think about that for a minute. That's not our sermon, but why is community often so hard? Because Paul calls us to having one mind amongst several people. You think about that, Aliana. There is nothing else in this world that can unite people in that way, in our mind, than Jesus Christ. That's why for 2,000 years, the gospel is changing lives and changing minds. That quite literally, when a group of people come together and focus their mind on Christ, great things can happen. But when you're double-minded, you have your selfish motives and your ulterior agenda on the mind. I'm at the view for the wrong reason. I'm not here to grow biblically. I'm here just for the social aspect. I don't want to know what the word says. And our minds divided. And that's why right here it's so hard to be united in one spirit. It is a miracle if a group of people, in fact, can you imagine 12 people coming together with one mind and one goal and living for one reason, what would happen? We saw the early church. It changed the world. What can happen in Memphis if a group of people your age got one-minded for the gospel? Miracles would happen. I'll give you this one, then we'll move on. Romans 8, verse 6. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. There will never be enough sexual immorality for you to be happy. There will never be enough money for you to have joy. And for me, neither. There will never be a dollar sign that takes away that anxiety you feel. There will never be a dollar sign that fills that hole in your heart that you're trying to fill. There will never be a dollar sign. I've counseled college students over the years. There's so many anxious, single people. And they don't do anything about their anxiety. Their anxiety rules them and they get married and they think deep down. I don't know if they'd vocalize it, but they think deep down that marriage cures anxiety. I got to tell you, you can search Sermon on the Mount. Jesus never says marriage cures anxiety. You know what it does? It exposes more anxiety that you didn't deal with. Is that scary? It's real world 101. There is no marriage. There is no friendship. There is no amount of followers you can gain that's going to satisfy your soul or give you the peace of mind you so desperately crave. Here's what you need. A mind that is not divided on the sin of the world or the ambitions of your flesh, but a mind that is truly set on Jesus. Man, you say, that's such a church answer. 
It's a gospel answer. It's been working for 2,000 years. When the church didn't get it right, it's because the church missed it, not Jesus. Doesn't mean Jesus missed it. What you're looking for is not far from you, even though you feel far from it. Peace, freedom from anxiety, it's not far. It's very close. There will never be enough in this world to satisfy your soul. So anxiety divides our mind. Number two, anxiety drains your energy. Anxiety drains your energy. It's why a lot of us talk about being tired and exhausted. It drains you. We are made to work. We talked about that four weeks ago. I would be so bold to argue it's not your work that tires you out. You were made to work. Overworking, being a workaholic does, but doing your role that God has given you doesn't exhaust you. It doesn't drain your energy. Even if it's a hard job, you were made for it. What does drain you is anxiety, and that's bringing work home one day. It's especially hard in ministry. When I leave the church doors and I go home, I have got to make sure that my mind is not divided. There's some things that are not 8, 8.30 to 4.30, absolutely, but there are some things that are. When you're working your full-time job one day, it's not just going to be that job that's going to tire you out. It's going to be if that job causes anxiety, then you'll be drained. Friendships don't tire you out. It's not even social events that tire you out. It's the anxiety that comes with them. <laughs> For introverts like myself, it's an anxious thought to think about having several, several, several long conversations in a big, large group setting for four hours. The anxiety of, anxiety of that tires me out. I can do it. I can stand there all day long and have these conversations, and you can too, but it's the anxiety of going through it that tires us out. Isn't it amazing? You can trace almost all of your fatigue that you experience from anxiety. It is draining you. It is wearing you down. I love Psalm 34, verse 13. It's a great promise. It says, one who is righteous has many adversities. A lot of translations say many cares, many worries, many fears. And it says, but the Lord rescues him from them all. Psalm 34, 19. Did you know that over half of young adults admit to having extreme losses of sleep. In fact, it's very fascinating if you look at history. People used to sleep 11 hours a night. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that or not. People used to live life back in the day. They slept 11 hours at night. You know when that was? It's a long time ago, Nathaniel. They'd rise with the sun, and they'd set with the sun. I mean, you study ancient history. They would sleep when the sun slept, and then something happened. Time, schedules. We began rising not with the sun. We began staying up later with electricity. When electricity was invented, people started staying up a whole lot later. They didn't go to bed with the sun. That's an amazing study we don't have time for tonight of how we kind of escape God's timing of living and we've created our own. But now people sleep only an average of seven hours a night, a four-hour difference. That your generation struggles with sleep, and a lot of studies show that the reason why your generation cannot get a good sleep, the reason why my generation can't get a good sleep, is because we're stressed and anxious at night. We're either worried about what just happened or we're worried about what is to come. Have you ever laid in your bed at night and not been able to fall asleep because something will not escape your mind? A lot of times, not all times, a lot of times it can be chased back 
to anxiety. It drains your energy. It's why we're so tired. Not just that. Number three, anxiety damages your health. There was a British study that found that people who experienced low to mid levels of anxiety on average lived much shorter lives than those who didn't. That when Jesus says, which one of you can add an hour to your life by worrying? Not one of you can, but it is quite literally taking hours away from you physically to live in anxiety, to live in stress, to live in worry. And you think about that, man, because a lot of us, what we do is, if we're being honest, we certainly don't trust God with our problem. We try to worry our way through our problem. Maybe if I just think about it long enough, I'll come up with a solution. Maybe if I just talk to enough people about it, I'll come up with a solution. And what happens is it is literally damaging your health. Do you see the progression? Not only does it divide your mind, not only is it draining of your energy, but it is literally hurting you physically. And here's how some of the other ones. I'll, I'll read you this verse. I think it's very good. Proverbs 17, verse 22. It says this. It says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones Now take these last three effects. Divides the mind, drains your energy, damages your health. You think about these three progressions that all of us experience. Here's where it affects others. Number four, anxiety destroys your relationships. That if you live this way, if you continue down this path, it is literally destroying and hurting the relationships you have in your life. And you say, Daniel, how in the world is that possible? Here's how. When you're anxious and you are in chains to anxiety, that means you are never truly present where you are. That means you are never there. Because if you're anxious, you're anxious about something that is to come, a hypothetical scenario, something that's probably out of your control. And that means you are never truly present. Guess what that means? You are never truly present with who? The people directly in front of you. Man, for a lot of you with Thanksgiving, we'll be honest, some of you just wanted to get through Thanksgiving. You wanted to get through the dinner. You wanted to get through your time with your family as quick as you could and get back to whatever else you had on the agenda. I understand. I've been there. For some of you, man, like <laughs> you're wondering how long is the sermon going to be tonight, Right? Because you got other plans to get to. I understand that too. But for some of you, your worries and your anxieties and your fear and your stress consumes you so much you can never truly be present right where you are. In fact, it's refreshing to you. It's a breath of fresh air when you walk away from a conversation and realize, wow, I was fully present. I was fully there because a lot of your conversations are not that way. Daniel, how can you say that? Because statistically, you are also the loneliest generation, Gen Z. You're connected in every single way, yet you're so lonely. Why? You're surrounded by people. We're not six feet social distancing anymore. That COVID generation is now in the real world. You're connected on social media. You are around people physically and digitally, and yet you're the loneliest generation we've had in years. Why is that? It's because you're so anxious, you're never truly with the people you're with. You're never truly there, and I'm never truly there. That's why we have so many friends and acquaintances, yet we feel like we're never known. That's why we have so many people we know who never truly know us. 
because we're never truly present, because we're thinking and we're divided about something else. The only way you miss the season you're in is if you're focused on the next or the previous. The only way to miss the season you're in is if you're focused on the next or if you're missing the, or if you're focused on the previous. Because I guarantee you, if you're praying and you're reading God's word and you're focused on where your feet are, you don't miss the season you're in. You are right where your feet are. But for so many of us, we want to escape because whatever's next has our answers. There's an old saying that the grass is always greener on the other side. And for some reason, we tend to believe the grass is always greener in the next stage of life or the previous stage of life. You're never where you are. Not only that, though, anxiety is always self-focused. Let me say again. Anxiety is always self-focused. I can't tell you the last time I was anxious for somebody else. Every anxious moment I have is about me. I can tell you when I've been concerned for other people, because concern is different. I can tell you when I've been concerned for people's families who don't know the Lord, and it led me to pray for them. I can tell you when I was concerned over my grades in school, and I needed to get them up, it led me to studying more. I can tell you when I was concerned for the ministry, and it led me to pray more. See, concern leads you to action. You know what anxiety does? It paralyzes you and keeps you from action, because it's always self-focused. I challenge you, not out loud, but can you think of a time you were even anxious for somebody else? No, it's always anxieties over how something will affect you. Man, that's such a sad way to live. When I did those two sermons last year and I studied all about anxiety and the threat it wages on our hearts, I was so convicted to look over my life and realize how much time and people I had given away to simply worrying about myself. Peter says in one chapter before this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. To maintain a constant love for one another. I'll tell you what anxiety does. It robs you of that. And I can hear some of you, man, some of you would say what I would say years ago. You say, I'm just a worrier. It's just how I am. It's not true. It's a choice. It's a choice. Because it's obeying or disobeying. It truly is. At the end of the day, God has told you, do not be anxious. In other words, quit worrying. Because the God of the heavens and the earth is in control and he loves you. If he feeds the birds, he'll feed you. Aren't you worth more than they are? And he knows every single amount of hair on your head. And he has told you, quit worrying. Quit being anxious. Because that's not trusting him. That's trusting you. And it's robbing your relationships. But it doesn't have to. As you think about your life, do you see these challenges present that are present in others in your generation? Number five, the last one, anxiety depletes your joy. I haven't alliterated anything in a long time. Felt good. Depletes your joy. 
God bless you. Psalm 94 verse 19 says this, When I am filled with cares, other translations say worries and anxieties, your comfort brings me joy. Do you live an anxious life? If you and the Lord don't do something about that now, these effects only increase. If you're 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, 23 years old, as you get older, these increase if you don't give them to the Lord. Because the older you get, the more responsibility you get. The more you enter the real world, the harder problems tend to get. Anxiety is a false God that must be torn down. Tomorrow, seven years ago, I preached my first sermon for The View. And I was in a much different season of life. It was November 28, 2016. I was an MA. I was an intern. I'd only been saved for 11 months. So I wasn't even a Christian for a year yet. And I hated public speaking. The last thing I ever wanted to do in my life was public speaking. The pastor at the time, he gave me like a five-week notice that I was going to preach my first sermon. So for five weeks, I was anxious and worried sick. I can't tell you during those weeks how many times I went through scenarios in my head of what would happen on stage. Some of them make me laugh now. I had this great fear that I would trip as I was walking on stage. I had this great fear that I would fumble my words or I would mess up a point or I would get lost all over the place. I had this great anxiety. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. Just anxious. I've been anxious for stuff in my career. I've been anxious for stuff in my ministry, anxious for relationships, just like you have. I get it. It's hard to overcome. But that fear and that anxiety of preaching my first sermon was none other. It was paralyzing. I tried to overcome it. I practiced the sermon over and over and over. I had pretty much every single word of my sermon memorized. I mean, down to like where the period and commas were, exclamation marks. Like I had the whole thing planned out just because I was so terrified of public speaking. And it came down to a week left until I was preaching my sermon. I was so anxious. I was tore up about it. And I realized in my quiet time that the reason I was so anxious is because I was so fearful of what people would think or say about me. And God broke me. He said, you're preaching for the wrong reason, if that's what you're concerned about. You're preaching for the wrong audience. You're preaching for them and not for me. And it broke me. Out of four weeks of being anxious, sick. So that week leading up to it, I did everything I could to try to give it to the Lord. Everything I talked about in my two sermons last year, I tried it. I prayed. I gave it over to the Lord. I sought godly counsel. And still I just couldn't shake this anxiousness. I don't know if you've ever been there. And the day came for me to preach, and I remember waking up that morning, and I woke up with this sickness in my stomach. You know how you feel on a class presentation day. You know how you feel when you're about to ask that person out that you've been interested in for a long time, and you don't know which way it's going to go. It's the same as when you send that text message, and then you set your phone down, and you're anxious about it. It's like that. I had written this message, and I was so anxious about it. I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. I hope God does something. I was so sick. I literally acquainted the anxiety to asking somebody out back then. That's what I told somebody. I was like, I feel like I'm asking somebody out, and I don't know what the response is going to be, and I'm going to fumble my words. And I get there. I've practiced this sermon so many times. Practicing it didn't make me feel any better. And the worship leader began praying. And as he began praying after, like, the three songs, I was off to the side, and I remember thinking, okay, this, this is my time. And I walk up there. I walk up here just like with this table. 
And I walk up here, and I stand there, and he's still praying. And, of course, he prays the longest prayer I've ever heard him pray in my life. So I'm just standing there waiting for this moment to be over so I can try to give this sermon. And as I'm standing there, I had one of, for me, in my testimony, the most supernatural moments in my walk with God that I have ever had. As I stood there in this moment, I had not said a word yet. I had never spoken a single word of a sermon before. And I stood there, and as he was praying, every single bit of anxiety that I had left my body. And I hadn't said a word yet. Normally that comes after the race, after the game, after you give it. You know that feeling you get after you give a presentation or after that girl or guy says yes and you're going on a date? That feeling of like, ah, I did it, but I ain't preached a word yet, Sean. This could still go very badly. And trust me, I'll put my foot in my mouth sometimes. It could go really badly. And I'm standing there, and all the anxiety, I could feel it physically leave my body. And God asked me one question in a moment. He laid it on my heart. He said, why were you so anxious? It's not in your hands anyway. The memorization, <laughs> I said like 90% of things that were not in my notes. <laughs> the nervousness in my hands, they weren't shaking at all. I held everything normal. And through the whole sermon, there was not one moment of anxiety. And that's the night I knew that I was supposed to preach. What I learned in that moment is a great lesson about control. Most things in your life are not in your control. In fact, you waking up tomorrow, as much as you and I think we have control over that alarm, if you wake up tomorrow, that's a gift from God. And at the end of the day, if you and I truly do believe that we have a God who has put the breath into our lungs, what is there to truly be anxious about? If he is supplying the oxygen, if he is allowing your mind to work, if he has given you people in your life who you love and incredible opportunities, what is there to be anxious about? Is he worthy of your trust? Is he worthy of you saying, I don't have control over these things anyway? You do. And letting him orchestrate it all. Sermons. Friendships. Family, tomorrow, he holds it, you don't. But scripture also said he holds you. Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the last thing I want to, I want to do. Please don't miss this. These five things you just wrote down, these effects, I want you to look at your notes if you wrote them down. If not, I'm going to walk through them. If anxiety divides your mind, the Spirit of God unites it. Imagine living with an undivided mind. When you trust the Lord, instead of anxiety, you have one mind. If anxiety drains your energy, when you place your trust in God, you have energy that you don't know where it comes from because it's supernatural. Number three, if anxiety damages your health, truly, trusting the Lord 
can extend your life. Number four, if anxiety destroys your relationships, trusting the Lord multiplies and strengthens them. And if anxiety depletes your joy, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. 